This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 13th, but it's a Thursday, not a Friday the 13th. Woo, we slipped by on that one. That could have been really bad. First Friday, or the first 13th of 2022 being a Friday the 13th. As crappy as things have been, I, I don't believe in stuff like that, but I also like I don't really need that either, do you? Anyway, Thursday the 13th, what are we going to talk about today? Well, you know since it's Thursday, it is the Expert Council Q&A show. I've got a great lineup of experts for you. And by the way, I need questions for Expert Council members. I have a backlog with some of them, but a bunch of them have no questions. And if you don't ask, they can't answer. If you'd like to ask, ask a question for an Expert Council member, put TSPC Expert in the subject line. Shoot me an email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. In the email sub, or in the email body, put Jack, my question is for Expert Council member whoever. Don't put whoever, put their name. And then say, my question is, and ask your question in a single sentence with a question mark at the end of it. Do that. Then hit return. Then give whatever details you feel are necessary. If you do that, we will all be much more clear on what you're asking, including you yourself, and we'll get you a better answer. I promise you it can be done. Trust me, I've been doing this for almost 14 years now. I am a professional. This is how you're going to get the best answer. If you're like, well, who's in the Expert Council show? You go to today's show, and you can look and see all of the websites of Expert Council members. And if you go to the About tab, you'll see every Expert Council member, a summary of what they can help you with, even a picture of them that says, here's who they are. And let us know what your question is, and I will get it over to them, and they will get you an answer, except for a few pikers. The rest of them, they're really good about getting answers back really, really quick if you get them in. So what do we got today? Well, in the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, we have Dr. Paul asking a simple question. Why the hell hasn't Fauci resigned yet? Dan McAdams is going to talk about a stunning, I mean an absolute stunning statement from Pfizer's CEO. Now, if you post this on mainstream social media, they'll probably flag it as false information, even though it's the CEO, not former CEO, current CEO of Pfizer making a stunning statement about the vax. And then Chris Rossini will back clean up over there and talk about avoiding traps of mental despair if you are a liberty-minded person living in the world right now. I think it's really important stuff to hit on. John Pugliano will talk to us today about economics and finance and invest. No, not really. A little bit in the beginning, a little blurb on it. But John is also a ham radio guy and a comms guy, and he's going to talk about developing a protocol for emergency family communications. And uh, that's a good subject we should uh, definitely talk about more than we probably do. Patrick Rohrman will join us with some finer points on handle attachment for knife making. Dr. Bones will talk about risk factors and mitigation of the risk of stroke. This is a survival topic. How do you know? Because stroke kills over 800,000 people a year in the United States alone. That's just the ones that we know that's what killed them. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about how a plant-based diet compares to a keto diet. Uh, I have some thoughts on that one, too. And I will fix my screw-up and let Nick Ferguson back clean up for the council today with his segment on fodder trees for tropical climates. Got a bunch of emails from you guys. Hey, where's Nick's segment? I, I don't know how, 
but somehow I screwed it up. I shall endeavor not to screw it up today, and Nick will let you know about his plant sale that's ongoing, and you really want to check out Nick Ferguson's plant sale at rareplants.com. He's got some awesome stuff, great pricing. And then me, what do I have for you today to that final, final, final cleanup today? My 12 predictions for 2022. Some shit's going to happen in 2022. That's one of my predictions. It's, it's not really. It's a little clickbait that I put on the image for today's show and today's video. Uh, but I will be uh, giving you 12 predictions that I have for 2022. And all of these I have high confidence, higher than 80% on. Some may be like, well, it'll be sort of 2022, but it maybe won't go into effect until 2023. But, yeah, I've got 12 predictions for you. I'm pretty good at my predictions. I do get some wrong, but I get way more right than I get wrong with my predictions. I'd say I, I probably bat about 750 in the world of my predictions. That's pretty good. So out of 12, you know, we'll get more than seven right probably if we base it on the averages. With that, let's delve on into this and uh, start out with the Liberty Report highlights from Dr. Paul and his team. They had they had some Senate hearings and it had to do with the subject of uh, well the biggest subject of the whole hearing was uh, Fauci is annoyed with my son. Oh, no. Would that be an understatement? Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) I I think he must realize that uh, he's been exposed. He's he's gone away with it for for 30 years. Why should he think, well, you know, it's time I put my tail between my legs and get out of here. I'm not going to put up with this. He's he's standing pat. But uh, I think that's an ego trip that has lasted a long, long time. And uh, it's the emperor has no clothes, you know, and that's what's becoming uh, quite evident. So this is um, this is in the news. I keep thinking later uh, that he he would resign. And Rand has, I think, even on the air made mention that as things go along, and especially if the politics are shifting, uh, he he figures Fauci knows he isn't going to be there if the Republicans take over. So uh, this might have boosted it up a little bit. There might not be months months to go before uh, Fauci resigns. And I'm not, I I wouldn't put a lot of money on that either. I I think he might be so dead set on this that it would be impossible psychologically for him to accept this because he would have to, it's sort of, without saying it, it would be a bit of a confession. You know, they were right all along. Rand Paul was right and that's why I have to I have to leave because I uh, overstepped my bounds. So that's why uh, he's going to hang on for a while. What's fascinating is this is Pfizer's CEO. If any of us just a couple of months ago would have said what he said yesterday, we would have been banned from social media <laughs> as misinformation. Well, let's go to a couple things. And first, we've got to give Jordan Schachtel some uh, full credit for this. He wrote about it yesterday. This isn't after an interview that Albert Borla did, uh, I think it was on CNBC, talking about his shots. And Jordan wrote, after once claiming his shots are 100% effective, Pfizer CEO now says two COVID shots offer very limited protection, if any, against COVID-19. Let's go to the next one. Let's refresh back to April. This is what was promised on April 1st. Albert Borla, CEO Pfizer, excited to share that updated analysis from our phase three study with BioNTech also showed that our COVID-19 vaccine was 100% effective in preventing COVID-19 cases in South Africa. 100 percent, he exclaimed. And here is that same CEO yesterday on TV. We can't have the clip because they pulled it for copyright. But here's what he said, quote, 
two doses of the vaccine offers very limited protection, if any. Three doses with a booster offer reasonable protection against hospitalization and deaths, but less protection against infection. So you go from 100% to basically they're worthless. And the question that I have, Dr. Paul, is if two shots of a certain substance give you zero protection, why would a third shot all of a sudden magically give you that protection? It might backfire on them. Yeah, I guess wonder. I mean, There's a big temptation for people on our side to fall into a trap. And we see it with COVID. We see it with the Fed. It's, it's to kind of um, throw in the towel and say, oh, everything is all part of the plan. No matter what happens, you know, it's what they wanted to happen. And that is a trap that you can't allow yourself to get into because it's not true. There's predictions, oh, the Fed is doing this, all this on purpose. They're going to have a controlled demolition, as if they're taking down a, a old sports stadium to put a new one up. You know, with the elements of cement, steel, those are under control. They have no choice in the matter. You can do that over and over, but not with people. You can't uh, have a demolition of the entire economy. People are unpredictable. They can react in a billion different ways. We're not like cement or steel or like the natural elements. We have choice, and they can never, ever predict all the possible choices. We can even our own selves react to the same situation one way, and then the next time react a totally different way. We're not predictable like that. So to think that they have this grand plan that they're just going to have a controlled demolition and everything's going to go accordingly is wrong. And we should never succumb to that. We are in the power position by, uh, you know, searching for the truth and clinging to that. And the truth always prevails. We have to be more confident than that, than not always just kicking the stone, like, oh, this is all part of their plan. You know, what if you came to the Ron Paul Liberty Report and uh, Dr. Paul and I, you know, we totally flipped the script on you and said, you know, the Fed is going to make two plus two equals five. And each day we'd be like, here we go. We're one step closer. You know, we're, we're doomed. It's good. They're going to make two plus two equal five. I mean, that's no way. To, that's It's just not true. They will never make two plus two equal five. So we should never, uh, as as bad as it is, we have to deal with all the trouble that they create. We should never throw in the towel and think that everything is a part of their plan. They're some supernatural people that can, uh, you know, move all the chess pieces perfectly because it's just not true. Yeah, on each of those, it, it's amazing that these so-called scientists, uh, representatives of drug corporations, and bureaucrat scientists like Fauci can come out one day and say something like it's 100% effective, come out a few weeks later and say it really isn't at all. And no one calls them out on it. No one in the media is like, gee, that's that's confusing. Maybe we shouldn't just take whatever these people say in the future as being factual. Maybe we should take some level of skeptic. Nope, nope. And I bet you, if you go out and you post that the vaccine is not effective against uh, Omicron, or as I call it, the moronic, uh, uh, the moronic variant of the virus, because you can rearrange Omicron to, to, to spell moronic. It's that, that ridiculous at this point. That you'll be censored or like overlaid with vaccines go through many testing to prove that they're safe and effective or some bullshit like that. Even though the CEO of the company making the damn thing just admitted it, you know, blatantly in public. I, it's amazing to me. Now, I, I agree with Dr. Paul. 
Uh, and I, I, I didn't think I was gonna when he, cause I, when I saw the uh, summary that, that Chris sent over to me, why hasn't Fauci resigned yet? He, and I was like, maybe he thinks it's gonna happen. No, he doesn't. He says he's gonna hang on for a while. And it's because he would be admitting it. Um, I, I don't think it's because he would be admitting it directly. Like some kind of ego thing. I think that the position that Tony Fauci has in our government right now affords him massive legal protections. And as long as he remains in that position, even if the Republicans completely take everything over in the next cycle, and as far as the, the, the legislature in 2022, you'll hear my predictions, I think that's going to happen, he is still Teflon-coated. It is very difficult to do anything to affect Fauci as long as he remains in the position that he is in in government. He has so much control and so much pull, and I really, 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 100% recommend, if you haven't already gotten a copy, you get a copy of The Real Anthony Fauci by Robert Kennedy Jr., and that you read it, or get the Audible and do what I'm doing in the morning so I take care of the ducks. I've been listening to it. And I'll tell you that the book is so freaking overloaded with accurate information that I can only listen to about 20 minutes of the Audible at a time, and I have to stop, and I have to process what I just heard. And I did do some fact-checking on it, but I've gotten bored with fact-checking it. Because it's kind of like you know listening to a Bill Mollison lecture in permaculture. Once you fact-check something enough from a source, you just go, okay, unless it's really, really, really outlandish, I'm not going to do it anymore. And in this case, they're all really outlandish, and it all checks out. It all vets out. Tony Fauci's a criminal. Tony Fauci belongs, at minimum, in an orange jumpsuit in a federal penitentiary. Minimum. I can think of worse fates for him. But that is the minimum. That's where Tony found. Now, I, I'm not big on hopium. Right? I think hopium's a bad drug, okay? Hopium is bad. Tony Fauci is never going to prison. Tony Fauci will retire and collect more money on an annual basis in retirement than most people make over a 10 year period in our country. That's what's going to happen. It's wrong, but it's what's going to happen. But he belongs in an orange jumpsuit, and I would not be in opposition to him receiving the ultimate penalty that you can uh, have in our criminal justice system because I believe the man is one of the largest mass murderers in the history of the world. I honestly believe that. I honestly believe that. Uh, as far as what Chris had to say at the end, you know what I just told you might feed that. The, the, the despair, the, the, the depression, whatever. That like these, They're not winning. Surviving is not winning in of itself. The entire tide is turning right now. And in fact, they already know it's turning. I put out a tweet on the 2nd of January. And what I said was, Omicron is mild and so mild that it's going to be the end of the pandemic. And wait for it. When it happens, they're all going to claim victory and that the vaccines and lockdowns and measures saved us. And we still need to continue them to a degree, and especially boosters every six months forever so it doesn't come back. And since I did that, that post, it's been 11 days, and it is happening to the point where I, I recently said something to the effect of, everything is happening as I have foreseen it. Me and Emperor Palpatine on different subjects. Anyway, that's my thoughts on that. Let's go ahead. For, and if you think when I say these things about Fauci belonging in an orange jumpsuit, or possibly ending up in the freaking gas chamber, are outlandish and too much, read the flippin' book and fact check it yourself. 
And I would just simply ask you, if you if you are in favor of the death penalty, and I'm not, honestly, as far as it being in the control of the state, because I don't trust the state. But in principle, I am pro-death penalty. I think there are certain things that you can do that you deserve a dirt nap so that we don't have to deal with you anymore. And I would simply ask, how many people does a person have to be directly responsible for the death of, through their actions or inactions, before you meet that criteria? And if the answer is any, if you get up to a hundred before you say yes, then you could probably make justification for doing it to Fauci hundreds of times. I know it sounds crazy. Read the book. Next up, um, we have John Pugliano talking about uh, emergency communications protocols, uh, what to use and how to do it for families. Hello, TSP. Happy New Year. We're going to start out the new year with an emergency communication question from James. Before we get to that, I just want to mention a quick comment about the stock market. You know, despite all the negative headlines, the major indices closed out the end of the year and are starting the beginning of this year, still riding high. Most of the major indices are within a fraction of their all-time record highs. We're starting out the year with a lot of volatility. There's a lot of negative headlines. There's concerns about inflation and the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. There's still the overhang of delaying of a full reopening of the economy because of the Omicron variant. But despite all these things, I am not concerned. For now, at least the way the data looks currently, overall from a corporate profit potential, the economy still looks very sound. As COVID and Omicron continue to dissipate and the economy does fully reopen, I'll be looking for opportunities to take profits, sell out of the reopening type stocks, and get repositioned for new stock trades to take advantage of the midterm elections. Hey, so enough about the economy. Let's jump into James's question. And he's asking about preparing for emergency family communications. He has a large extended family. They mostly live in the state of Illinois. But he does have one family member that lives in Oklahoma, and he's wondering what type of communications they can use in the event of an emergency. He mentions things like ham radio or Zillow or, you know, other type communication networks. Well, James, I think that redundancy is always important. And so depending upon what level of an emergency situation you're talking about, as long as the grid is up and running, then you have, you know, almost an infinite variety of very good, high quality voice and messaging type applications that are available. And I'm talking about everything from Skype to Zoom to Zello or Telegram or Facebook Instant Messenger. I mean, what I would do is I would look at the universe of things that you and your family are already using that are Internet or cell phone based and set a couple of those up as your primary means of communication. And then should that individual network or elements of the Internet go offline, have alternative channels set up that you guys are familiar and know how to use just in case your primary ones go offline. And then that way you'll have a mode that takes care of the most easiest and convenient sources to use. And then should we get into some type of a off-grid or a natural disaster that knocks out normal communications, and the next best source that I would recommend would overall be two-way radio communications. And you know I'm a ham radio operator, and absolutely hands down, I'm going to tell you that amateur radio, ham radio in all of its various forms, but especially high-frequency radio, is your best resource for off-grid emergency communications. But that comes with one big but. And the but is, is that you've got to have radio operators in your family 
in all the areas where you want to be communicating. And you've got to have radio operators that not only own the equipment, but are familiar with how to use it, and especially how to use it effectively during an emergency. Amateur radio isn't complicated, but it does require a certain skill set. And to really take advantage of it, that requires having the knowledge and the license at the level of a general operator, and that requires passing an FCC exam. So absolutely, hands down, ham radio is the best two-way emergency communication, but only if you're going to prepare for it and know how to use your equipment. Other than that, you'll just be wasting your money. So as alternatives to that, and this would really apply to your family that lives within the state of Illinois, you're all you know fairly close, maybe 25 miles apart. I would, at a minimum, for two-way radio, look at purchasing CB radios, the mobile radio types that you can use in your vehicle. CB radio is much easier to understand and learn how to use, and especially if you get a mobile unit that you can, you know, temporarily install in your car with a mag mount antenna, you know, just by using the cigarette lighter as a power source. It's pretty much plug and play. It's not very expensive. And during an emergency with CB radio, at least you'll be able to bridge those short distances and have a communication envelope over your immediate area so that if roads or bridges or other things are knocked out because of natural disaster, you'll still be able to communicate with each other over those short distances. And then if you want to step that up, I think the next best option is to avoid the family radio frequencies and the low-end consumer GMRS handhelds and to actually buy a mobile 50-watt GMRS radio. It'll be about as easy to use as a CB radio, but the advantage to a 50-watt GMRS, the distance you cover will be much greater than the CB radio, and so that's why I say it would be a big upgrade for your local communications. And really the only downside to that is that it is going to be more expensive. You're probably looking at, you know, I don't know, $500 or so to get a decent radio with the antenna and things. And although a license would be required to have the extra wattage, there's no test required. It's simply a matter of paying a $70 fee, and that's good for a 10-year license renewal. So there's some thoughts. The other thing I would say is that, again, ham radio is your absolute best emergency communication type resource. And if you're not going to take the time to learn how to use it, then I think the next best thing is to make friends that are ham radio operators. So even if you don't want to learn to use the equipment yourself, if you have a friend that's a ham radio operator, then you can rely on your ham radio friend to relay the communications for you. Remember, an emergency is just like regular life. The more prepared you are, the more contingency plans you have, the better you'll be able to deal with all the curveballs that life is going to throw you. Well, hey, as always, thanks for the questions. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast. All right, next up, we have Patrick Rorman talking about attaching knife handles, or what they called scales, and different aspects of that, including epoxy, clamping, etc. Hey, guys, this is Patrick with MT Knives, coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. This week, actually, there is no question. So if you have a question... Be sure to send it to Jack at the Survival Podcast, and uh, I'll do my best to answer them. Instead, we're going to cover a topic on knife making today and epoxy. We're going to cover the difference between 5-minute epoxy and 30-minute epoxy, how to properly prepare 
handles before you put scales on uh, and the difference between a good knife and a mediocre knife. So when I first started making knives, I was using just some five minute epoxy on my handles. And somebody mentioned that you could over clamp your handles. And I was, I'd use that five minute epoxy and I'd use some screw clamps and clamp down the handles nice and tight. Well, I kind of thought it was crazy. Somebody said you could over clamp something that you were gluing together that you would squish out all the glue or epoxy and I decided to do some testing. So I took some, just some scrap metal I had laying around and some G10, G10, some pretty tough stuff. And I uh, epoxied it up, put just a regular clothespin spring clamp like you get from Harbor for freight on a set of scales and took another piece of steel and did the same thing with the C clamps on how I was doing my knives. Um, and then after they had properly cured, I took it to the anvil and just beat it with a hammer until the scales came off. And surprisingly enough, the handles that I, the G10 that I put on with the, the screw clamps, they were nice and secure, but I was able to hammer them off. And the scales that I had put on with just the spring clamp, I got them off as well, but they were much harder to get off. So I learned a valuable lesson early on, and that is not to over clamp what you're uh, putting together. You can make the bond weaker if you apply too much clamping pressure. Uh, the next thing is surface prep. Surface prep is almost more important, or is more important even, than the type of epoxy and how you clamp it. It is very important to have a textured surface for that epoxy to bond to on the steel. And on your handle material, a pretty textured surface as well. So I like to stop at 80 grit, 60 grit, somewhere around there on the uh, inside of my wood scales. And that gives it a nice texture for that epoxy to bond to. And then for the, for the steel itself, I like to sandblast it and get that surface nice and clean and have some texture there for that epoxy to bond to. And last but not least, if you can have some sort of mechanical fastener, whether that be pinning your pins or uh, Corby bolts or, you know, whatever, some uh, some form of mechanical fastening is going to make for a better knife handle in the long run. The epoxy we have today is excellent stuff. It's going to last for a really long time, but you are counting on that epoxy um, and a mechanical type fastener is always going to outperform the epoxy. So anyways, I hope this uh, has been some useful information for you, whether you're going to make your own knife or even if it comes to just gluing something up for woodworking or just general life knowledge. If you guys have any questions for me, feel free to send them in. Once again, this has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. Have a great day. Next up, 
You know, there's something way more deadly than COVID in the United States. There's actually a lot of things way more deadly than COVID, like obesity and heart disease, uh, and, and closely related to them and often co-related to them is a thing called a stroke. Doc Bones is going to tell us what a stroke really is, how it happens, and some things that we can do to mitigate the risk thereof. Hi, Joel Nendy here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net and co-author of the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. I was saddened recently to hear of the passing of Dave Wolf Stutz, a great preparedness and firearms instructor who was a fellow member of PrepperNet. Dave passed away from a cerebrovascular accident, which you'll know better as a stroke. I haven't talked about this issue in a long while, so I think it's important to let everyone know about them. A stroke is a medical event in which a blood vessel that supplies the brain with oxygen either becomes blocked with a clot or leaks blood. The effect in either circumstance is that tissue served by that blood vessel becomes starved of oxygen. Within a few short minutes, the region affected begins to die and functions controlled by that part of the brain are lost or impaired. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is considered to be a major risk factor for a stroke, but there are other predisposing factors, diabetes, tobacco, obesity, some heart irregularities. In a sizable number of cases, no obvious cause is actually ever identified. According to the CDC, stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States, with about 800,000 cases a year. Of those who survive a stroke, many are left with a significant permanent disability. Indeed, a percentage won't make it to the first anniversary of the event. The failure to provide oxygen-carrying blood to the brain could occur in one of two ways. One, a blood clot obstructs a vessel needed to maintain circulation to the brain. This is called an ischemic stroke and is the most common type. The blood clot may have formed locally, that's called a thrombosis, or traveled from elsewhere in the body, known as an embolism. In survival, another way an ischemic stroke occurs may be seen in areas where hostile encounters are common. If severe trauma to, say, the chest causes severe bleeding, it may deplete the brain of oxygen to the point that an ischemic stroke occurs. The second way is from a leak from an artery, a vein, or an abnormal structure that causes blood to accumulate in the brain tissue or the space between the brain and its protective membranes. This is known as a hemorrhagic stroke and can occur due to trauma, blood thinning medications, or other causes. A hemorrhage places pressure on sensitive brain cells, causing significant damage as blood accumulates. This kind of stroke can be caused by uncontrolled high blood pressure, or less commonly, by a malformation of a blood vessel known as an aneurysm. An aneurysm is a weakness in a vessel wall that looks like a tiny balloon. If it bursts, a catastrophic bleed into the brain could certainly occur. Sometimes hemorrhage can occur in the area of a blood clot-induced ischemic stroke, blurring the line between the two types. The CDC has compiled a list of symptoms that point the medic to the diagnosis of stroke. By learning these often unmistakable signs, quick action can lead to life saved and function restored. Stroke victims will often exhibit the rapid onset of certain symptoms. The classic ones follow the mnemonic, be fast. B. Balance. Is the person suddenly having trouble walking or with balance and coordination? E. Eyes. Is the person experiencing suddenly blurred or double vision or a sudden loss of vision in one or both eyes without pain? F. Face. Does one side of the face droop or is it numb? Ask the person to smile if you're not sure. A. Arm. Is one arm weak or numb? Ask a person to raise both arms. Does one arm drift downward? 
S speech. Is speech slurred? Are they unable to speak or are they hard to understand? Like me sometimes. Ask the person to repeat a simple sentence like the sky is blue. Is the sentence repeated correctly? Also, can they understand your speech? And T for time. It's important to note when symptoms started and when the victim was last thought to be well. The longer the time frame between wellness and weakness, the more likely it'll be long term. The presentation of a stroke victim is oftentimes quite striking and an observant medic will make the diagnosis quickly. Rapid action may help preserve function and even life. The large majority of strokes are ischemic blood clot related in nature. In normal times, a patient with this type of stroke might be treated with surgery or a powerful IV therapy that helps break up clots. In survival scenarios, blood thinners like aspirin may be of use, but only for ischemic strokes. If no aspirin is available, salicin from the underbark of willow trees has a similar effect. It should be noted that a hemorrhagic stroke, which is about 20% of all strokes, may actually worsen with the use of blood thinners like aspirin. This presents a dilemma for the medic, as the symptoms are about the same for both ischemic and hemorrhagic types. Some believe that hemorrhagic strokes present with a more sudden onset of headache more often than do ischemic blood clot related strokes. As many strokes are caused by elevated blood pressures, antihypertensive meds may help to reduce damage caused. Make sure your people are taking their meds. Blood pressure is usually at its lowest if you place the patient on their left side. Recovery from a stroke is not impossible. The National Stroke Association reports 10% will experience almost complete recovery with another 25% having just minor impairments. Reports suggest that the most recovery occurs soon after a stroke, but improvement may still occur over a longer period of time, especially with rehabilitation. Let's talk about that. Various types of rehabilitation may be used for stroke victims even off the grid. Motor skill exercises. Weak muscles can be retrained to improve strength and coordination. Mild exercise, repetitive movements, these are the cornerstones of this therapy. Mobility training. Patients are trained in the use of canes, walkers, wheelchairs if available. Range of motion therapy. Stretching, reaching, rotation of joints. This helps increase the range of tense spastic muscles. Speech therapy. With one side non-functional, more effort is required to get enough air to speak. Practice breathing exercises so as to allow the most communication possible. To help with pronunciation, say a set of sounds and later repeat full sentences. Also, perform tongue strengthening exercises like sticking it in and out from side to side, touching the roof of the mouth. These may help form words better for clearer speech. Cognitive therapy. Puzzles, games, things that require the use of memory are helpful to improve brain function. Write words on cards and ask the patient to, let's say, alphabetize them. Have the patient count different amounts of money and then add and subtract to increase the challenge. Checkers, block stacking, word games, these all improve problem solving and fine motor skills. The more interaction you have with the post-stroke victim, the better their morale. This will give them the best chance for a decent quality of life, even in survival settings. Better still, regularly monitor blood pressures, blood sugars, other symptoms. This is Joe Aldendi, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, for quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear, don't forget to check out our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did.
Uh, next up, we had someone uh, watch a documentary called Forks Over Knives and get really concerned about the concept of a keto diet and a, a protein and animal product-based diet compared to that of what we call a plant-based diet. And, of course, many people in so-called science hold up the plant-based diet as the epitome of nutrition. And uh, they asked about that, and Ken Berry has some response to it. I'm going to say that when you hear the audio quality of what comes next, it won't be perfect. It will have some flaws, but you'll be able to understand it. I cleaned it up as best I could. Uh, the first, like, 30, 40 seconds of this was really, really soft, and then the rest had some issues. Um, I broke it apart, boosted the really soft side, boosted the whole thing, and then uh, ran it through Levelator to equalize it for you. So it is very important, and I think it's a really interesting perspective that, that Dr. Ken always has. So uh, in spite of a little bit of a flaw in the audio, I think we can deal with it for this one segment. It's not very long. Uh, here we go. Hello, TSP listeners. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Janet. Janet says, I wonder if you could address the question about whether a plant-based whole food diet with low-fat and limited salt, like is talked about in Forks Over Knives documentary, is overall as good health-wise long-term as the keto diet. I found the issues raised about increasing cancer-related animal products in food found in the China study very disturbing and wonder if if he could shed some light on yeah, the Great question, Janet. A lot of people have been misled by documentaries like Forks Over Knives and uh, The Game Changer. These are beautifully made documentaries, uh, but as you know, most beautifully made movies are full of fiction, and these two are no exception. The China study has been completely and totally demolished by various researchers online, Um Denise Minger, M-I-N-G-E-R, has a very elegant video you can find on YouTube by Googling her name where she just destroys the China study. The China study is, was a, just a terribly done study. It was done by a vegan, so you can imagine what his preconceived notions were. And uh, so what's going to happen if you follow a plant-based whole food diet for long term is you're going to have to wind up needing a huge handful of supplements every day so that you don't develop omega-3 deficiencies, vitamin deficiencies, and mineral deficiencies. If you look on any credible vegan influencer's website, they'll give you the list of all the supplements that you're going to need to take on a daily basis for the rest of your life. And so my supposition would be that any diet that in order for you to maintain optimal health requires you to take a handful of supplements every day is probably not a proper human diet. Now, let's talk about the cancer that eating meat will cause. Every single bit of the research that they talk about in these documentaries about a plant-based diet saying that meat causes cancer are based on what is known as observational epidemiological research. Now, the definition of this type of research is that it cannot show causation. So anytime they say, well, this study shows that meat causes an increased risk of cancer, you know at that point they're full of shit. What they're telling you is, is a blatant uh, dishonesty. They may not know better, but it is still a dishonesty. All that epidemiological research can show is a possible association. 
And so when they tell you things like, oh, if eating one hot dog is like smoking five cigarettes or eating one egg is like smoking seven cigarettes, this is complete and utter horseshit. There, there has never been a single research study done in the history of humankind that shows a causative relationship between eating red meat and cancer, between eating red meat and heart disease, between eating red meat and colon cancer, that research does not exist. The only thing they have to go on is the observational data that's based on food frequency questionnaires, which is literally a multiple choice test that asks you questions like, how many cups of ribs have you eaten in the last six months? Like, who the hell, how do you even answer a question like that? There, there is tons of bias on part of the, the researchers who are almost always plant-based advocates. And then also there's bias from the study participants because the way the questions are worded, it's obvious that you need to say that you didn't eat many cups of ribs and that you ate lots of plants and vegetables. And then also there's this thing called healthy user bias that you can look up, and that will help you understand as well that the research they talk about is just idiotic and it doesn't have it doesn't have any place in a an informed scientific discussion about human nutrition. I hope this answer helps. This is Dr. Barry. See you next time. So look, I whenever I hear these arguments, I always just wanna just let's rewind the clock on humanity prior to agriculture. And we know that our Paleolithic ancestors lived very long lives. They, we find a lot of remains from you know prior to agriculture, or even when agriculture existed in the world in in societies we know didn't have it or very much of it, with a lot of like oh man the life was hard breaks and broken bones and things like that. But yet the person still lived a, a, a good long life, and, and that means not only. Did they live a long time, even though that it was, you know, sometimes a hard life, sometimes a rough life? You didn't just run to the ER every time you had the sniffles. Um, but they had enough nutrition to recover from things like broken bones and actually go on and continue to live quite long. It's interesting. It takes a lot of um, nutrition and energy to repair something like a broken bone, especially prior to modern medicine. And they weren't eating a plant-based diet. I'm going to tell you this again. Anybody that was a human being walking around on this planet prior to the dawn of agriculture was not living on. I'm not saying they didn't eat any vegetation or plants or grains or nuts or seeds or whatever. People ate what they could find. But they did not live on a plant-based diet because it's not possible. Because it's not possible. Other than in a very narrow band within the true tropics, it is not possible for a human being to eat enough calories on a plant-based diet without agriculture. One more time, it is not possible. And the number one food item that we can agree that the majority of the planet used for a significant portion of their nutrition across the world, not everywhere, but some of it every part of the world, is shellfish. Because we have these mounds that are bigger than houses of shellfish remains. And it makes perfect sense because humans would follow water and coastline because it's a, an essential need. And they would build settlements on them. 
And oysters and clams and mussels and snails and other mollusks don't run away. So you have this incredibly dense, nutrient-rich, high-cholesterol, high-fat, high-protein, almost-zero-carb food source that just sits there, and all you got to do is pick it up and break it open with a rock or throw it in a fire. It pops open, and it tastes delicious. What do you think people ate? It is not possible that humanity evolved on a plant-based diet because it's biologically impossible. Because the plants do not provide enough nutrition throughout the temperate climates of the world for it to have been the case. Period. So how did we get here? We got here by eating animals and animal products, primarily. That's science. Now, I always say science is never settled. I'm not saying it's settled. I'm saying the best science we have. If you can show me compelling evidence to the contrary, I'll examine it. I don't think there is any because I understand ecosystems. Go through a forest in Tennessee or Ohio or the plains of Texas and live on plants. Do it. Go ahead without breaking into some farmer's field. And what you will find, if you do find anything, you'll find things that are like product of agriculture. Like in Florida, you'll find these wild yams. They, they didn't grow native in Florida, guys. We brought them over, right? We found them in the tropics, and they found a niche in Florida where they could survive over the winter. We, I'm, I'm telling you, this is this is not even really open for debate unless somebody finds new evidence. New evidence, we can debate it. Existing evidence, it's not there. It's not there. And it, what, what I've thought of lately, I, you know, I hear constantly on the radio and TV these advertisements for balance of nature. And the premise of balance of nature is you take all these fruits and vegetables... You dehydrate them and put them in capsules and people eat them. And the concept is we all need to eat more fruits and vegetables than we can possibly eat. Really? Then how do you get here? All right. On that, let's go ahead and move on. And let's talk about tropics. Yeah, tropics again. We kind of mentioned it there. But growing fodder trees to feed those animals with Nick Ferguson. I screwed it up last week, but I didn't mess it up this week. Nick, take it away. Hey everyone, Nick Ferguson here from rareplantstore.com and Homegrown Liberty checking in with a quick update and answer for the expert counsel. Sorry for my long absence. Computer decided to let all the magic smoke out and I've been busy with end of the year projects, consulting, so on and so forth. If you're a long time listener, you can probably tell something is off with my audio quality. That's because, of course, I'm trying a whole new setup because of the whole magic smoke debacle. Sorry about that. It's been a crazy busy year, but of course I am excited to be back on TSP. The annual rareplantstore.com plant sale is going live January 8th, if all goes well. So put it on your calendar so you don't miss out. I've already had a bunch of emails asking when the sale is starting because people missed out last year and are worried they'll miss it again this year. So put it on your calendar. Now, on to the question from Alan. What are some good fodder trees for tropical areas? I have 30 acres in Tanzania. I'll be buying another adjoining 250 acres. The land is former farmland that is laid fallow for 15 to 25 years. I'd like to raise livestock on the property and also operate a few orchards looking at leaf, nut, fruit, and plant fiber for animal and human consumption. The water table is between 10 and 20 feet deep. Elevation is about 600 feet above sea level. Rainy season is twice a year. Temperatures run between 60 degrees in the winter and rarely topping 100 degrees in the summer. Surface water is plentiful, and the property has a river that borders it, so flooding is three to four times yearly. 
That sounds beautiful. I'll be retiring from the military in the next few years, but I would like to establish a good supply of fodder trees prior to me moving on to this property. Thank you for your time and any help you can give. Well, thank you for your service. Okay, uh, man, flooding prone areas immediately makes me think of willow and poplar. Poplar is cottonwood. Uh, and if you can find any slightly drier locations, probably white mulberry, uh, while they can tolerate some flooding and wet soils, I don't really have enough information to go on to determine if they would be a good fit for your landscape. I don't know how much flooding you're talking about, if this is inches or feet, and how extensive this is. I kind of need to have eyes on the property to really give you some good, detailed suggestions. Sadly, I'm not well-versed on African tree species and names, but I will link any relevant research and articles I can find that might help you out in this department. I found some extensive lists. I'm going to put them in a blog post that I'll give Jack the URL to. So uh, that blog post will be over at rareplantstore.com. What I can do is speak to what I would be looking at planting if I could pretty much plant any of the trees that I'm familiar with. So before I do so, I have to include the usual caveat. None of these ideas are specific suggestions on what you should do. You need to do your own research to determine if my ideas will work for your location, laws, and other red tape malarkey. I personally think if you want hybrid willow for your land, you should be free to have some hybrid willow cuttings, I don't know, <clears throat> shipped to you and plant them. Literally, that's all you need. Cuttings from trees, no roots, no leaves, no shoots. They arrive and you stick them in pots in a shady place to start to root and grow. Fertilize them lightly once they have about six inches of, of growth showing. And once they start to take off, fertilize them heavier. Transplant them to a nursery location where they can grow vigorously and get them established. This way you can have a good established tree and you can take thousands of cuttings from over the next several years. And basically this means... You'll have as much stock to plant as many acres as you'd like. You just keep doing that over and over. Cuttings get stuck in the ground, make new trees. Same goes for the hybrid poplar, cottonwood. Again, I can't speak to the legality since I'm not a lawyer or even someone who has any idea about any of the laws <clears throat> of your country or really any African country. So you kind of have to look into those legalities yourself. I would never advocate or encourage breaking any laws that were silly like that. But uh, <clears throat> I am a strong opponent to the spurious idea of a supposed non-native species. I have the opinion that all species are native to the earth, and no amount of segregation will ever prevent the spread of every species to every corner of the earth. Uh, but let's get back to those fodder trees. Uh, so this is kind of the Nick Ferguson list. These are the trees that I'd personally be comfortable with planting and growing for fodder in a tropical to subtropical environment. And I'm going to list them in order of appropriate for tropics from the top to the bottom. Uh, the last four have a very wide climate range that they're comfortable growing in, with some being happy in nearly subarctic zones. So, I mean, we're talking about some pretty, pretty broad uh, application here. So for those of you who don't live in a tropical zone, I still have some good information for you. So, uh, tropical tagasasti, that's Cytisus proliferus. Moringa is Moringa olifera and Lucena is Lucena leucophala, but you might find 
uh, Colincii, Lanceolata, Lymphorana, Macrophylla, Magnifica, Shannonia, I think is how you say that, uh, and Trichoides. Uh, they all had high dry matter digestibility, greater than 65%, which is good. Low levels of non-digestible fiber, less than 26%, that's good. Low concentrations of condensed tannins, less than 1.5%. That can sometimes cause GI issues. Uh, so those three do well in tropical locales, and while some of them are frost intolerant, uh, I think the Lucena can handle very minor frost. Uh, the Tagasasti, depending on the, the variety, sometimes can ha- handle a very minor amount of frost, but normally not down below freezing. <clears throat> uh, on to four that have broader application for most of the U.S. and probably most anywhere in the world, almost. My top four probably are Hybrid Willow. That's Salix nigra crossed with something else. White Mulberry, that's Morris Alba or a hybrid. Um, and Hybrid Poplar, that's Populus deltoides. It's a cottonwood, and they're crossed with any number of other Populus species. Those three do well in subtropical to tropical locations. Uh, the fourth one is Lace Bark Elm, is Ulmus parvifolia. While I can't find anything specific about it being good in tropical zones, I'm almost positive it does great in subtropical zones, so I'd be, kind of be surprised if it didn't do fine in the tropics. And that's Lace Bark Elm, Ulmus parvifolia. Okay, so those are my recommendations. Again, I wish I could be more specific to exactly what you might be able to find locally, but... If you're able to import some trees, the list I just gave will likely work out fan-freaking-tastic for you. If not, then make sure you check out the blog post over on rareplantstore.com for more information on fodder trees for tropical and subtropical regions. I'll give that link to Jack uh, so he can put it in the show notes, or you can just head over to the website and click on it. I have all the info I just covered copied on the blog post, the spellings of everything in case you need those binomial nomenclature names for um, clarity's sake so that you're not confusing native speakers with um, a common name. You can use the scientific name and really figure out exactly what the local lingo is for that tree, uh, as well as a bunch of links to specific species being used in Western and Eastern Africa. Links to white papers, research write-ups, tons of information that's really extensive. I can't speak to the safety of most of those natives, so you should probably speak to locals about which ones are safe to feed what species of ruminant. Generally speaking, though, if a broad mixture is available, you have very little problems in the way of toxicity issues. You should be able to source Tagasasti and Moringa. Both of those should be heavy hitters for your region, and I know both of those are extensively used in Africa all over the whole continent. Uh, the only issue I see with the Tagasasti would be flooding and wet feet. It's generally a dry, sandy uh, environment favoring tree, shrubby tree. So if nothing else, do some observation of what species do best in the environment you want to cultivate and look into if they're suitable for fodder and if they're easy to propagate. If so, man, you should already have species suited to the site right where you are. But like I said, with the flooding and alluvial flood plain type growing conditions, it sounds perfect for willow and poplar. 
Oh, and uh, on the blog post, I'm going to have a link to a a YouTube playlist that I have on my Homegrown Liberty YouTube channel where I have like 20, 30 different videos all on fodder trees, coppicing, and pollarding. Uh, with all that, I'll go ahead and let you guys know, remind you that January the 8th, I am planning on having the trees available to order over at rareplantstore.com. So if you've been anxiously waiting, head on over there and check it out. And like I said, you should have about a week or two to get your orders in before it sells out. Unless this past year has gotten more people anxious about getting fodder species growing. What with, uh, you know, the 100% increase in fertilizer prices recently and impending animal feed price increases. Not fear-mongering, but I hope you guys are at least scoping out what you have already growing locally to prepare for hiccups in the supply chain. I can almost guarantee you have white mulberry, willow, and cottonwood growing somewhere in your region. You can always take cuttings of the willow and poplar in the winter, stick them in some potting soil, stick them in the ground, and you'll have those trees wild growing native. They won't grow as fast as the hybrids, but they'll still be great. I don't want any in this audience to get caught with their pants down. I'm personally planting a couple thousand fodder trees myself in 2022, uh, and I'm also slanting the fodder package towards the quickest growing and fastest to establish trees to help you guys get things going ASAP. I hope you had a fantastic new year, and I wish the best for you guys going forward. I'm Nick Ferguson. Do good things. So I did put up the uh, blog post this week that Nick Ferguson mentioned in this uh, in this segment, and that is on the, on my site. And I have a link to Rare Plant Store in the show notes for today's episode, episode 3015. And with that, let's dig into my predictions for 2022. All right, I wanted to, today to talk to you guys about 12. That's 12 predictions that I have for the year 2022. And... Um, I have pretty high confidence in these, or I wouldn't put them out. I have a pretty good track record of getting predictions right. But I'll say right up front, no one gets 100% of predictions right. I'll also say, some of these are absolutely hard hard and fast. I'm saying this will happen in 2022. Some of them are more like, by the end of 2022, we'll accept that this is what's going to happen. If something has to pass uh, Congress, for instance, uh, it may get through the process, get signed into law, but not go into effect or it might get left for uh, the next next year to actually uh, be picked up and completed, but we'll know that it's going to happen. So starting off with the one that everybody's got their heads in all the time now, thanks to the media, um, Omicron, a.k.a. the moronic variant, is going to effectively end the pandemic. I've been saying this for a while, so those of you who know me are probably not shocked that I'm going to say that Omicron ends the pandemic. And I want to be clear what I mean about Omicron ending the pandemic. Massive numbers of people in the hospital. Um, this thing actually needing any more attention than the flu, right? That's what I mean by end the pandemic. Now, many of you believe we're, we, we've been there the entire time. I do too to a degree, but not 100%. There are people that really get hit hard by uh, covid There, there are, and it is a thing, and it does happen. I don't. I'm not for any of the lockdowns, as, as those of you who follow me know. I'm not for mask mandates. I'm not for vaccine mandates. I think that the government should have done nothing, but we can do nothing and still be in what would legally or you know 
legitimately defined as a pandemic. But as I said, from the very beginning, when there was hardly any COVID in the United States, I said, these things always hit the most vulnerable first. You never realize how many people actually have been infected because a lot of people just don't react to it much at all. They have sniffles, a cold, or they have almost no symptoms whatsoever. It looks really bad. You only see the tip of the iceberg. And if you let it alone, these types of viruses attenuate over time. It's called viral attenuation. It's known science. And what that means is they become less lethal because it's in no benefit for the virus for it to be lethal. The virus is more likely to spread the less lethal and less symptoms it causes. And this is historically what happens to viruses like this. So that happens. However, does that mean we won't have vaccine mandates and all of this crap? No. No. What they're gonna, here's what they're going to say. And I, I put this tweet out on the 2nd of January. I said that Omicron is mild and very contagious and it will end the pandemic. And what they're going to do is declare victory. They're going to take a victory lap. The vaccines and the lockdowns and the social distancing saved us. It worked. Congratulations, potato salad and Chief Joe Biden. You did it. You got victory. But we need to stay ever vigilant. It could come back. And that's that's how they've always thought. It could mutate. It could this. It could that. It could. You know what? I could wake up in a tank full of money. Right. I could I, I could get get a letter in the mail today that says I won the publisher's clearinghouse. I could find a gold nugget the size of my ass in my garden when I dig it up. Anything could happen. Right. And that's how they do this crap. But the jab will never stop. The push for the jab will never stop. But even the mainstream is going to basically say we've moved into an endemic versus a pandemic very, very soon. In fact, in the 12 days or 11 days since I put that tweet out, the groundwork has been laid. It, 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 to quote Emperor Palpatine, everything is happening as I have foreseen it. Next, regs are coming to crypto in 2022. They probably won't go into effect, but there will be a bipartisan agreement that we need to regulate cryptocurrency because it's gotten so big, it now poses a threat to the economy if we do not regulate it. Now, this is not, I am for regulating it. I'm telling you, like the weatherman, here comes a storm. This is what you can do about it. What I think we are mainly going to see happen is two things. One, we're going to get clarification on the KYC components that were already put into the infrastructure bill that were vague and not specific enough to actually carry enough weight to be useful to the government. And I, I actually believe they were made vague so there could be a reason to do a cryptocurrency bill or to append it to another bill, right, like they did with the infrastructure bill, that they left that for themselves so they could come up with a reason, we must do something, think of the children that have Bitcoin, right? And the big push is going to be to recharacterize most cryptos as securities, and it's going to work And it's going to be effective because if you look at something like, let's say, a Cardano, where a small group of people are able to make decisions on the policy of the crypto as a whole, I hate to break it to you, fans of ADA, but that is not decentralized. And if you're paying a dividend through staking rewards out to people in the network... That looks a lot like a security, too. And if you're applying governance through a token, that looks like, a, like it's almost a security, but not quite. And I don't think you can destroy a $2.5 trillion market, even if you're the government, 
and, and, and think that you're going to get away with it. So what they're going to do is they're going to create some sort of a, a middle ground between something like a Bitcoin, which is a truly decentralized mine, no pre-mine, no individual small group can make a decision and change it, etc., Uh, those things they're going to have to regulate in a different way, and they will, and they're going to regulate that via on-ramps and off-ramps and exchanges, okay? The things like Cardano, right, and, and ones I, I like a lot more like Algorand or Cosmos, they're going to have certain requirements that they're going to put on them, and I think a lot of the projects that don't have a war chest of capital are going to be destroyed by it. And, and that's probably good because I've said before that like 90% of crypto projects are garbage. There's some that are not total garbage, though. I pick on ADA because I kind of think that Hodgkins is a scam artist, honestly. Um, but it works. It does a thing. It's functional. It, it does more than a lot of other shit does. Um, I think the way that the staking validators are set up, it's used to pump and dump through YouTube videos. But it works. It fills a, a, a niche. So that one may be one that can get through, even though I don't particularly care for it. Um, Algorand, I think, has a ton of money saved up, and, and, and they're ready for this, and they're, they're, they're set up to deal with this. But I think this is going to really hammer the altcoin space. Staying in crypto for a minute. Stable coins are going to be under this regulation. This is prediction number three and pushed in under the FDIC umbrella. This may not get completely done in 2022, but by the end of 2022, everybody's going to be like, oh, that's happening. That's kind of where I am with this. The, the, the groundwork will be totally laid, if not complete, and it probably won't go into effect until 2023 or 2024, but it will be a thing, right? And what that and they might accelerate it. It might go a lot faster, because you might wonder why they want to do that if you haven't been listening to me up till now on this subject. They want to do it because they want to mitigate inflation by globalizing the dollar. And that sounds crazy until you think about it. If, if you have a lot of money inside a country, let's stick, let's stick inside a country right now. Let's say you got 100 million people in that country, and you have bad inflation in that country. But... All of a sudden, instead of cutting the money supply in half, you go from 100 million people to 200 million people, and the money dissipates through that population. You're always going to have your top 2% and your top one-tenth of 1%, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the rest of the money. It dissipates eventually through the rest of the population because people get jobs, people need to eat, people spend money, etc. Your inflation actually begins to come into check, Because it's more hands for the same amount of money, and effectively that's a reduction in dollars per citizen. We can do the same thing by exporting the dollar around the world. So once you have an FDIC version of Tether or USDC or whatever, and then somebody in another country can take an electronic device, and you know, it could be an expensive phone or it could be a cheap $50 you know, Android clone or something, and download an app and, and, and start transacting in dollars, probably something in the neighborhood of about 100 national currencies are going to fail and the dollar globalizes. And that's the actual reason behind this. That's the real reason that they're doing that, is to put the dollar around the world and mitigate the inflation they did. I'm not saying it's going to work, especially long term, because it will create an opportunity to rein inflation in. But then you're going to have to rely on the same people that didn't have the discipline to not do it in the first place to take the opportunity and have the discipline to not do it again. 
But that's 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 a, a prediction. Number four, supply chain issues grow worse. Um, you will not see our supply chain issues go away in 2022. We won't go into complete catastrophic meltdown from it, but we will continue to have shortages, and they will continue to be exasperated and get worse. And it will continue to be exactly what it's been, but worse. And that means that not everything's in short supply at the same time. You're going to have these lumps and bubbles of like there's every, as much as you want of this thing and almost none of this thing and lots of this thing and a little bit of this thing, and that's going to continue. And it will play a role in the coming elections because it affects people. It's hard to tell people there is no shortage when they go to the store and they can't buy the shit that they want. And it's going to affect, it's not just, when I say supply chain, I'm not talking about just groceries and bare shelves buying What about everything? Literally everything is experiencing these disruptions in the supply chain. And it's going to get worse, and it's going to exasperate the crap out of inflation. Because when things are in support, short supply, and you already have underlying inflation, then your law of supply and demand does the rest of the work. That's going to be heavy, heavy, heavy this year. Next, homeschool will continue to grow. It will not grow at the rate that it did last year, which was a huge, huge percentage of growth in, in the sector. However, I would say you'll probably see another 15 to 20% growth of an already larger number than it's ever been in history. As more and more people become fed up with the school system, uh, more and more people uh, realize that even changing out school board members and things like that doesn't really fix the problem. It is a massive bureaucratic mess. It is easier to fire someone who delivers mail for the post office than it is a teacher, uh, unless they happen to make the, the grievous sin of like telling children the truth. Anything other than that, it's, it's almost impossible to fire a teacher. Uh, we have, I would say, about half of our teachers are mediocre at best. Half of them are really good. That doesn't really help, though, when you're, you send your kid to school and they don't have one teacher, right? They have like five or six, and if half of them suck, three or four of your kid's teachers suck. Um, so homeschooling continues to grow. Number six, the midterms are going to be a freaking bloodbath for Democrats. Um, I've heard some predictions, even some people that are pretty good at political predictions, saying, well, the Republicans will take over the House, but it won't be that big of a takeover. Oh, it's going to be big. And again, I'm non-political, so I don't take sides on this shit. I think they're all ass clowns. I think a lot of people will cheer. That's part of this prediction. Woohoo, we won. Not a damn thing's going to change when they take over. It's still going to be a bunch of haphazard bullshit. No one's going to stand up for your freedom and liberty, but you see, better start doing it. But it's going to look awful for the Democrats. I'm going to tell you that on the Senate side, I'm going to predict that the Republicans will hold 53 to 56 seats. And if you made me pick a number, like it was a lottery number, and if I got it right, I got a million dollars, the number I would pick would be 54 Republican Senate seats, uh, I think will end up being the result of the midterms. And everybody will cheer, and Sean Hannity and his ilk will come on and say, liberalism is dead, and the gab people will freak out, and then, yeah, it's all going to stay the same. But, you know, what, what guys, what, just wait till 2024, and we take the White House back, and the orange man rises like the great pumpkin, we'll, we'll get it all back. Um, bonus prediction, not for 2022, uh, Trump is not the nominee in 2024. Uh, I predict he won't actually even run. I think he's toxic, and I think he even he knows it. 
my number one pick for the Republican nomination in 2024, bonus prediction, Ron DeSantis of Florida, unless something really goes south for him between now and then. Uh, and I also think he probably is your next president, but that's so far out I'm not putting a high mark on that. It's just a, a wild-ass guess for now. Next, back to crypto for a second. The NFT market is going to explode and crash at the same time. How is that possible? People are starting to realize that a picture of a stupid monkey is not really worth any money. And, and this is my problem with the whole, you know, everything in the NFT world right now is mostly anyway attached to JPEGs and pictures and digital art. Um, music I get. Sharing in royalty streams, etc. I get. Here's the thing. If no one paid for the GIF or JPEG before NFTs, then you're not buying the GIF, the JPEG, or the art. You're buying the NFT as a speculation vehicle. And, and I mean, honest to God, some of these freaking images that people are paying thousands of dollars for, if prior to NFTs you had said, check out this cool picture of a stupid monkey, and you put it on Twitter, and you were an influencer, it would have went nowhere. It would have went nowhere. No one actually cares about this stupid shit, Right? And, and anybody can copy that image, and it, it, there's nothing about it that's truly unique. So I think that sector of the market begins to come into like a collective consciousness of, oh my God, how stupid have we been? And it's going to start when people at the bottom think they need money and decide, well, I know, I'll sell Board Monkey 2741. I paid fifteen hundred bucks for it. I got to be able to get like more than my money. It's a, it's like Bitcoin. It goes number go up, and then they're going to find out they can't get jack diddly shit for it. And the more of that that starts to set in, because what we haven't had yet in the NFT space, which we've had in the crypto space recently, is a sell off. And when you get a sell off in a non fungible market, people are going to get in touch with what non fucking fungible means really fucking fast. At the same time, we're starting to see more and more intelligent uses of NFTs like I've talked about. NFTs involved in uh, pay to, uh, you know, you get paid if you win in game systems and things like that. Um, NFTs for investing in things like planting trees. NFTs in investing in businesses. NFTs uh, to manage membership programs into different membership programs that have uh, certain benefits and then making that membership uh, transferable without the person that oversees the membership program having to get involved. Uh, NFTs used for fundraising for things like documentaries. Uh, NFTs used probably to fund mining operations rather than going through uh, IPOs. Uh, I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of growth in NFTs while at the same time this stupid shit begins to correct itself because stupid never survives long term in the market. It just doesn't. Um, Next, college enrollments, number eight. College enrollments continue to decline uh, more and more. Like, colleges have become dumber than they ever were. Let's see. We have less people enrolling than ever. Uh, people are realizing that we are a scam entity. I know. Let's mandate, let's, let's, let's mandate vaccines so we can please the emperor. Um, Pittsburgh, uh, University of Pittsburgh just put out a thing today. If you do not get your shot, your clot shot, uh, by I think it's the end of the month, they will refund your outstanding tuition and throw you out of school. 
That's going to work out really well for you guys. You, you just keep doing that. So I think a combination of higher learning stupidity uh, with, with mandates, higher, leving, higher learning wokeness, parents that are tired of funding this bullshit and sending relatively intelligent kids off to school and having them come home like my nephew spouting woke-ass bullshit, um, that hurts. And at the same time, realizing that a lot of these people with degrees work as baristas at Starbucks, assuming Starbucks is freaking open because your idiot governor didn't shut it down, more and more, more and more people are moving toward trades. And I talked about this years and years ago, and now everybody's talking about it. I mean, you know, Lily, white neighborhood, upper class, yuppie mom and dads are telling some of their Johnnies and Susies, maybe you should consider a trade, even if mommy and daddy are doctors or something like that, or lawyers. Because they're starting to look at Johnny and Susie without bullshit rose-colored glasses and saying, you know, Johnny's just not right for college. I went to college, Johnny's not right for it, plus it's a woke-ass pile of crap now. Uh, Johnny would be better off learning how to do things like fit pipes together. Or stick metal together with a welder or something like that. And there's tremendous opportunity in the world right now for trade-skilled individuals. So all of that leads to more decline in college enrollments. And I will tell you that I think you'll see several institutions of higher learning shutter their doors this year. It won't be the state schools like University of Pittsburgh or whatever. Uh, but I also do think you'll see some college campuses not closing down but selling off assets, selling off buildings, because just don't have a student body count anymore, so you can't keep those buildings open without doing something with them. Uh, some of them may be smart enough to think about leasing them if they can find tenants. Uh, we'll see if that can work for them. Number nine, lockdown states especially will continue to bleed population. You will continue to see an exodus in the population of states like California, Illinois, and New York. In fact, I predict more people will leave those states this year than last year, which is saying something, okay? That's saying something, because I think what's going to happen is a lot of the people that have been there and holding out is can't keep going on are going to be like, yeah, it, it, it can keep going on, and I'm done. I'm out of here. And I'm hearing from more and more people in my audience, we were going to wait it out. We're not. I'm getting more and more people emailing me, where should I move to in Texas? And guys, before you do, I'm going to tell you, I don't have a great answer for that. I know my area of Texas better than anything else. Um, I like it here. You may, you may not. If you're going to move, I recommend taking at least a one-week vacation that's not a typical vacation to a place. Go get an Airbnb in a neighborhood. Go eat at local restaurants. If you're a church person, go to a church that's of your denomination. Um, Meet some people. Talk to some people online. Get in our Telegram group. Anywhere you want to move, I guarantee you, somebody in our Telegram group is going to be like, oh, I live there. And then have somebody local that you can talk to about, you know, when you get there. And, and go live in a couple different places. Go to Florida. Go to Texas, you know. And then then pick uh, uh, between them or other states. Arizona's looking pretty good in, in overall. Um, but I'm going to tell you, it's going to continue and it's going to accelerate. Uh, on technology... There will be major advancements this year released in self-driving vehicles. Uh, and I will tell you that I think by the end of this year, we will have a law passed that is going to require uh, auto braking in all new vehicles. All new vehicles. And there will be over, worldwide, close to or over 8 million electric vehicles on the road by the end of this year. 
I know people don't believe that. People talk about they don't work or whatever. Yeah, they do, and they're coming. Are they? Are there places where I would never own an EV? Yeah, yeah. There's places I would never own an EV. Would I right now? Would I own an EV and not own a gas vehicle at the same time? No, I would have to have if I was going to have an EV. I'd also have to have a gas vehicle as well, uh, so that if the situation warranted it, like you know, it's going to snow. Uh, and I might get stuck in traffic for like nine hours or something like that. I probably wouldn't take the EV, but there will be over eight million of them, or very close. It'll be something like seven nine five or something on the road. And you're going to see moving towards self-driving vehicles this auto braking requirement. And let me explain why that's going to happen that way. The manufacturers want to do it, but it's expensive. And what companies do in this country when they want to do a thing is they make sure that everybody has to do it so that the, the price is spread out across the board and you can't have like a holdout. You can't have like, let's say a Ford where say, you know what, we're not doing that. We're not doing it and we're going to keep our vehicle. So the, overall, all our vehicles, not just our self-driving vehicles or with these features, are going to cost less. And then when you guys get it done, we'll just grab the technology and do it, right? They don't want that. They, they want to, to level the playing field, socialistic style, fascist style. And so you, you push lobbyists to actually make you do a thing as though you need their incentive to do it. And so that's going to happen. Um, I also think on, a, on number 11, international trade. We are going to have a major trade deal with India probably happen in uh, 2022. I know you haven't heard a, a peep about that, but it's the layup that will let Biden look like he's done something. Um, there was kind of a, a, a trade, and I would call it a trade war, but a trade skirmish with India started by the orange man, and uh, India is willing to do a deal. You know, and, and it might not be a good deal. It might not even be a big deal. But we're going to have some sort of a trade deal come down with in India. And no matter how much of a shaft we get, or even if it's not we don't get the shaft, but it's just kind of insignificant, it will be the only thing that the leftist media is going to be able to hold up as an accomplishment for the potato salad in chief. And they're going to make like he, he brought peace to the Middle East five times over by doing a trade deal with India, who is already an ally with us. Uh, and we also need it. That's the other side of it. We need some way to offset our dependence on China, and we're not willing to invest domestically in a, in, in, to just simply lessen our need to import. So we'll make the trade deal with India. And number 12, get ready to hear all about the moon. And I don't mean with your crypto. Um, we are going to start hearing all types of kind of rah-rah championing Of the, the of man returning to the moon, uh, they will probably put a robot vehicle on the moon this year, and if not this year, it will be very early next year. And its primary mission will be to find water and to drive around and look for water because everything that they want to do on the moon hinges upon finding water reserves on the south pole of the moon, and everything that's going to happen on the moon is going to happen on the South Pole. I, we've gone kind of long, so I don't want to go too deep into that today, but that's where it's going to be. That's where we think the water is, uh, and that is where we can build structures that humans can live in, where we have power around craters with solar, and we have humans living inside the craters. And remember, there is gravity on the moon, so they're not going to fall off because they're on the bottom. And we're going to have basically our structures built inside these craters to help protect from radiation. And this is all about... Uh, 
three things. Hydrogen and oxygen. You get that from water, so we need water to live, but that's, that's rocket fuel. And then we can refuel missions to Mars um, without having the gravity well of Earth and having be able to refuel. Uh, and then the other one, the third one, is helium-3, and that is going to be outside of there, but everything's going to start on the South Pole. So there they are. Those are my 12 predictions for 2022. So with that, we have wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. The uh, segment you just heard from me was done live on a live stream on YouTube and Odyssey and Float and Twitter and other places. And if you if you want to catch the live streams, one of the things that you can do to make sure you have a better chance of doing that is join Telegram, if you haven't already done so, and get on the Survival Podcast Telegram channel. Whenever I'm going to live stream, I put out a notice that I'm going to live stream. I fell behind and didn't until really late today, but I still gave everybody a 15 minutes heads up. So you want to check that out and if you want to stay informed with things. And there's a lot of things I put out on Telegram that doesn't necessarily make it on the air. Just a thought. And with that, it's been Jack Spear going another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Show you a better way You don't have to be Another face in the crowd You don't have to live the way they tell you to Make your own way The others will follow Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution is you.